So do you think people can change? <laughs> Sometimes we wonder, right? Sometimes we think, well, they keep doing the same things over and over. I keep doing the same things over and over. Maybe, maybe true change is really, really hard. But in this passage we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see several changes. One is significant in the fact that God changes Jacob's name from Jacob to Israel. When we come into this passage, it starts out, and there's this note of optimism. In verse 1 and 2 of the chapter, Jacob goes on his way, and the angels of God meet him. And Jacob said, when he saw them, this is God's camp. Two camps, my camp and God's camp, the angels and, and, and me and my herds and flocks and family. So there's this note of optimism, perhaps recalling when he left the land of Canaan, he saw the vision of the angels of God. Now he returns to the land of Canaan. He sees the angels of God again. Perhaps uh, encouraged by this vision, he sends messengers to Esau to let him know that he's coming back. There's a great deal of uncertainty on Jacob's part. It's been 20 years, but his brother was ready to kill him when he left. So what's going to happen now? He says... Tell them, I've sojourned with Laban, stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. And then the verses that we read in our scripture reading, Esau is going to come meet him. But Esau has 400 men with him. Jacob is, of course, afraid to hear this news. He assumes, most likely, as we would probably as well, that the fact of these men coming with Esau means that Esau is going to attack him, finally take his revenge. Notice Jacob's response. First of all, he divides his people into two groups. Maybe some will survive. Then he calls on the Lord. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. And so he does the right thing here, particularly in his prayer to God. He acknowledges God, God's promises to him, God's faithfulness to his family before him, and says, I'm afraid of my brother. I don't know what he's going to do. Protect me. Keep your promises that you've made to me. You've, you've preserved my life to this point, I'm sure he's thinking. You can do it again. So he calls out to God. But then we see this interesting scheme in verses 13 through 21. He sends out 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their colts, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. And he says, pass on before me, put a space between droves. And he, he sends this large gift of livestock to his brother in hopes that it will appease his brother. We see perhaps here an, an element of him, uh, I mean, the expression we would use would be hedging his bets, right? 
I've prayed to God, but it wouldn't hurt if I give him a nice present. You know, everybody likes a nice present, right? It's going to be interesting when we get into chapter 33. The thing that affects Esau's response is not what we see in verses 13 to 21. It's not this large and generous present that he's given to him. It's something else, and we'll see that in just a moment. But we come now to the, the next section of our scripture reading. He sends his family across, and at first we say, well, why would he stay behind if he sends his family across? But it seems like he's sort of remaining at the back to make sure everybody gets across the stream safely, right? At the place where they're fording the river. And he's getting ready to go himself, and then he's, he gets into this conflict with this unknown assailant, this man that's mentioned in verse 24. Because when we come to the beginning of chapter 33, he puts himself out in front. So it's not like he's sending everybody over because he wants to put them in danger. He's just sort of supervising the crossing, and then he plans to come over last. But then this man comes up, starts wrestling, starts fighting with him. Interesting fact, the, uh, where it says the ford of the Jabbok, and the man wrestled with him, those are different forms of the same word. So there's a little bit of a word play here. So the fort of wrestling and Jacob wrestled. And so that is not hugely significant other than the fact of we're going to see all throughout this section the idea of wrestling and striving and fighting, and that sort of introduces this section, which we would think the big thing that's happening in chapter 32 and 33 is Jacob meeting Esau. But verses 24 through 32 point out to us that the big thing was not Jacob meeting Esau, although that is important. The big thing is Jacob meeting God as he comes back into the land of Canaan. The people of Israel are going to come into the land of Canaan, crossing the Jordan River many years later. Here, God is leading Jacob back to the land that has been promised to him according to the word that he gave him when he was staying with Laban. He said, go back. He preserved him from the conflict with Laban, judged rightly between him and Laban, sends him across the river now. But before he goes into the land of Canaan, this unknown man wrestles with him. It says, until daybreak. So they're doing this in the evening when it's dark. When he, the man, saw he had not prevailed, he touched the socket of his thigh so the socket was dislocated while he wrestled with him. People have come up with all sorts of different reasons why this was the case. But think about this. If you're wrestling with someone and they strike a blow, or even, depending on how you take the word, just a light touch to the spot where his hip was, and his leg is immediately dislocated from his socket, that's going to make you pause and wonder who is actually going to win the fight, at the very least, right? And so there's this question, is he going to give up? Is he going to keep fighting and wrestling? Who is going to prevail? Verse 26, he says, let me go, for dawn is breaking. Jacob says, I won't unless you bless me. What was the significance of the dawn breaking? Well, as we'll see by the way that Jacob assesses the situation a few verses later, he has come face to face with God. And when he says he's come face to face with God, there's a couple of possibilities. One is that he recognizes that the messenger is from God, like an angel having taken the form of a man. Or, and some commentators would take it this way, this is Christ himself come down in 
appearance of a human being like he did with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 18 and says, and, and is wrestling with Jacob, and the reason for not being uh, made visible by the dawn is because of God's uh, glory being too much for Jacob to bear and all of those sorts of ideas. But here, he's wrestling. It seems like he's going to lose. He refuses to let go, even though he knows that this person he's wrestling with could easily overpower him. It's interesting. Instead of immediately granting the blessing... What does this person ask? What is your name? And he says, Jacob. And that ought to recall to our minds the way that Jacob has lived, right? Tricked his brother out of his birthright, stole the blessing from him. Now he's asking for another blessing. He's saying, but who are you? Jacob, the supplanter, the deceiver, the one who has schemed and plotted and made life work on his own terms. What's the response in verse 28? No longer Jacob, but Israel, which generally has the meaning God strives, but here he is given a different commentary. You have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. In what way has he striven with God? Well, think back to what he said when he was leaving the land of Canaan. There's this element of maybe a little bit of bargaining with God, maybe a little bit of of, of uncertainty, whether God would be his God, and certainly the striving with men, with his brother Esau, with his father, then with Laban and Laban's sons, and all of these sorts of things, and have prevailed. Verse 29, give me your name. He says, why do you ask it? We see a similar response uh, in later places in the Bible. Why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful or too great for you? Those sorts of things, those sort of phrases. Phrases we'll see later in the Bible. Look at at the end of the verse. He blessed him there. Why is the significance that he blessed him here? I mean, he already had the blessing. God had already promised him the blessing. He had received him from his father Isaac. But here we see God himself giving him the blessing, right? Because Isaac could say whatever he wants, but unless God granted the blessing, it wasn't going to be the case. Jacob names the place Peniel, for he says, I've seen God face to face. My life has been preserved. That word means the face of God, God's face. And then verse 31, the sun rises, he crosses over Penuel, which also means, same kind of idea, face of God. He's limping on his thigh. So his leg's been dislocated. He's limping. He's striven with God and men. He's prevailed. But he's got a reminder of it, right? And ultimately, he would not have prevailed unless God wanted him to prevail, right? It's not as though uh, God could be defeated by any mere human being. And yet, in this moment, Jacob is brought face to face with his former character, with his desire for a blessing, with God's gracious granting of that blessing, with God's um, description of his name, as in who he is, is changed from the one who tricks and deceives and supplants and plots and schemes to the one who strives, or even more, the one for whom God strives. He comes to terms with God's work in his life, what God has done, what God will do, and he has these reminders. He has the reminder of probably, potentially, as he goes on through life, 
The pain in that spot reminds him of this encounter with God. The name of the spot is renamed Face of God. And even the practice of the Israelites later on would recall this encounter of Jacob with God. Now Jacob's going to meet Esau. Notice the end of verse 30 before we go on to the thing of Esau. I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. We come into this chapter thinking the greatest danger that Jacob is going to face is Esau's threat to kill him. What's the real danger? Encountering God face to face and not being consumed by his glory in light of our sinfulness. And so that will become important as we continue. Jacob lifts his eyes and looks, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids, maids and children in front, Leah and her children next, Rachel and Joseph last. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. A little bit of the old favoritism is rearing its head again here, right? Well, if the children of the maids get killed off, at least I'll have Leah's children. And if Leah and her children get killed off, at least I'll have Joseph and Rachel, right? This was uh, not in accordance with, hopefully, some of the lessons he would have learned by this point. But it is understandable from a human perspective. We understand why he did it. His attitude all throughout this section is like this before Esau. Remember the prophecy way back in chapter 25? The younger will rule over the elder. The elder will be his servant. In this passage, we see a reversal of that in regard to Jacob's attitude toward Esau. There's probably also an element of guilt that is at work in this circumstance because Jacob knows that he is in the wrong with the way that he has treated his brother, right? Doesn't necessarily deserve to die, but he was guilty of the things that Esau accused him of. Contrast this with what we looked at a few weeks back in his encounter with Laban. Laban comes and says, you've lied and you've stolen. Jacob's attitude is very much, I haven't, God may judge between us. It's very much just an attitude of confidence, and I know I'm in the right, and you're the one who's taken advantage of me. Here, there's a completely different attitude. Why? Because he wasn't in the right in the way that he treated his brother. He wasn't in the right when he left his brother. And so he's, he's, he's dealing with that now. Verse 4 is surprising. Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Five different words to describe Esau's response of a family reunion of someone you haven't seen in decades. Not the attitude of one who wants to kill his brother because he still holds a grudge. Why the change? We might think the reason for the change is Jacob sent him a really nice gift. How do we know that's not the reason? Look at verse 8. What do you mean by all this company which I have met? And he said, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Esau said, verse 9, I have plenty, my brother, let what you have be your own. Esau hasn't even accepted the present, so that's not the thing that changed his mind. So what changed his mind? The short answer is God, right? The means by which God changed his mind is less clear. 
Is it that he's had 20 years to reflect and for his anger to subside and for him to recognize that God's purpose is being accomplished in light of the, the things that were told to his mother, in light of how events have fallen out since then? Has he come to acknowledge it? Does what it says in the New Testament, in Hebrews 12, I believe, where it says he sought for that blessing with tears, did he actually have some measure of genuine repentance, even though he could not be the promised heir of his father Isaac, at the very least, he was willing to recognize that his brother was the one that God had chosen. We're not given all those details in the text. But at the very least, we can see that God has worked in Esau such that he is no longer ready to murder his brother, but instead he greets him warmly and affectionately and with joy at his coming in verse 4. The, the tension rises a little bit. Jacob's worried about his family. Look at verse 5. Esau lifted his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. The maids came near with their children. They bowed down. Leah with her children. They bowed down. Joseph with Rachel. And they bowed down. There's a lot of bowing and acknowledging of humility and respect and all those sorts of things. There's still sort of this lingering question of, even though there's been this warm greeting, is it going to immediately turn? Am I still in danger? And then he comes to the question of the gift. Verse 8. What do you mean by all this company to find favor in the sight of my Lord? But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. Take the gift. I don't need it. This might, um, this might seem rude to us, right? Just got done with Christmas. If you exchange gifts with people in your family, if somebody said, all right, here's, here's, uh, here's this great package of socks. You're like, no, I have plenty, which we know is not true. They all wear out. You always need a new one, right? No. Uh, we would think that it would be rude if someone offers you a gift. You're like, no, I'm good. I don't need it. But... He's probably expressing politeness in accordance with the customs of their time, right? Here's this large gift representing a decent amount of wealth that his brother is giving to him, and he's saying, you don't, you don't have to do this. I mean, I appreciate it, but you don't have to do this. Look at verse 10. This, I think, also is a key verse in light of what's taken place, in light of what God is doing here. Jacob said, No, please, if now I have found favor in your sight... Take my present from my hand, for I see your face as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. Please take my gift which has been brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have plenty. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Notice the, the development here. Take the gift. I have plenty. If I have found favor in your sight... I see your face as one sees the face of God. Jacob has fresh in his mind this encounter with God, and now he has this encounter with Esau. And the reason that the nature of this encounter with Esau is the way that it is, is because of God's work. And so he continues to urge his brother to accept this gift. And then he says, If I have found favor with you, you have received me favorably. Take my gift brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me. He desired to find grace or favor in the sight of Esau. 
and because I have plenty. Esau says, I have plenty. Jacob says, I have plenty. There's this, there's this sort of parallel progression. At the center of it is this idea, I see your face as I see the face of God. Almost, not precisely, but almost the idea of, because Jacob has seen God's face, Jacob is now able to see Esau's face in peace. We'll come back to that in a moment. Esau then says in verse 12, Let us take our journey and go, and I'll go before you. Jacob's hesitant about this. The children are frail, the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me, and if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on before his servant, I will proceed at my leisure, according to the pace of the cattle that are before me, and according to the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord at Seir. Uh, was Jacob being deceitful here? At the very least, he was being polite. We have no record that he went to Seir. We have no record that he didn't go to Seir. At the very least, he is uh, making, he, he's looking for a polite way out of immediately accompanying Esau to his place of stronghold at this time. Verse 15, Esau said, Please let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. Well, if, if, if you are vulnerable on the journey, let me leave some people with you. But Jacob said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. He's still not completely sure he could trust Esau's men not to do him harm. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. There's this building of this tension and this tension, and then Esau returns to his home, and the tension is relieved. Jacob journeys to Succoth, built for himself a house, made booths for his livestock, therefore the place is named Succoth. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem in the land of Canaan, when he came from Paddan Aram and camped before the city. He bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. Then he erected there an altar and called it El Elohe Israel, God the God of Israel. So think about this. Beginning of chapter 32... The angels of God meet him. In the central part of the chapter, in the last few verses of chapter 32, God himself meets him. At the end of chapter 33, he builds an altar to his God, the God of Israel. And so we see this progression of his encounters with God and God's messengers and his acknowledgement that God is in fact his God as we come to the close of the chapter. What then does this have to do with us? Um... The point of it is not that you're going to encounter someone in a dark alley and that you should fight with them until the daybreak. Wouldn't recommend it, depending on where you live, just generally. That's not the point. What is the point? I think the point is, broadly speaking, as we look at the life of Jacob, and, and I'll bring it back to this specific passage, but I think at this point it would be helpful to look at the broad perspective of Jacob's life. Jacob starts out his life clearly a sinner, undeserving of God's grace. Jacob continues through life, and we see his life start to change. Still elements of sinfulness, even in chapter 33, this, this favoritism and the arranging of his children in terms of their importance to him against the potential threat of Esau, he still has sinfulness going on in his heart. But... We go from someone who is clearly in the wrong in the way that he dealt with his brother and his father to someone who is taken advantage of by his own family in the way that Laban deals with him to someone that God judges in his favor in chapters 30 and 31 to someone whom God says, 
This is who you were, supplanter, deceiver, plotter, schemer. Now this is who you are and will be, the one who has striven with God and the one for whom God will strive. Um, just out of curiosity, I, had, I looked up how many times that word Israel is used in the Old Testament. And if I remember correctly, it was over 2,200 times. This name is significant both for Jacob personally and for God's people generally. Because that name is going to come up over and over and over again. And much of Israel's difficulties came when they forgot that it was God who was working in them and not they who were working for themselves. Up to this point, Jacob is striving, Jacob is striving, Jacob is striving. We see God working in his life, coming up to the close of his life, even at the end of the book in the last few chapters of Genesis. What does that have to do with us? We all start out as sinners? Yes. If you are trusting in Jesus today, has God, does God do a work in you? Yes. Think about the effect that your sin has had on the people around you. Jacob has this broken relationship with his brother that has persisted for 20 years because of something that he clearly did wrong. But how is the reconciliation that we see in chapter 33 and verse 4 possible because God is at work in his heart and apparently in Esau's heart to some measure as well, not because of his attempts to make the meeting go well. Esau eventually accepts the present, and Jacob links the present that he's given with God's blessing and with having encountered God and with all of the circumstances of this meeting. But the present's not the thing that changes Esau's mind about Jacob. It's God's work that has done that. We experience parallel things to Jacob in the course of our Christian lives. Sinners, being transformed, having opportunity potentially to be reconciled with those that we have sinned against in some way earlier in the process in the course of our lives. The thing that we need to remember is the reconciliation with God ultimately has to precede the reconciliation with anyone else. The fact of receiving someone else's forgiveness is only made possible because of the forgiveness that we find in Jesus. And even if that person does not accept us, there's the possibility that it doesn't turn out like what happened with Esau. Even if that person does not accept us, we still have the benefit of that forgiveness and work that God has done in our lives. If we take it a step further, what is at least in part the message of the gospel? Think about what it says, for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 15. 
Paul's talking to the Corinthians about their responsibility. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Chapter 5 and verse 14, the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, one died for all, therefore all died. He died for all, that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but him who died and rose again on their behalf. Verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away, behold, new things have come. All these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What does Christ's work accomplish for us that has parallels to the story of Jacob? It transforms us from being sinners, from being old creatures, to being new creatures, from being God's enemies, to being God's people, reconciled to him. And as Paul writes elsewhere, for example, in the book of Ephesians, there is no longer a wall of division between Jews and Gentiles and all of these other groups that are at odds with one another in human society. But that's not the main point. It's just a necessary consequence of the fact that if we are reconciled to God, we can then be reconciled to other people. So in the story of Jacob, particularly in the chapters that we look at today, we have this idea that God has begun a work that he has not brought to completion, but he has brought to a significant point of turning at the end of chapter 32 in Jacob's life, which then makes possible and leads up to this point of reconciliation with his brother and an acknowledgement that God is in fact his God, the one that he's following, the one who is at work in his life. So by way of application, what does this look like for us? I already talked about the implications of the gospel and the parallels between that and what we see in the life of Jacob. But what does this look like for us? Think back to the question I asked you at the beginning. Can other people change? Can you change? We have in our minds this tension, right? We want to believe the best about people, but if somebody has repeatedly lied or repeatedly stolen, or repeatedly let us down in some way, or repeatedly spoken harshly to us, what sort of attitude creeps into our hearts about that person? It's what they are. They're just going to keep doing the same things. Why even bother anymore? Or, I face sin in my heart, and I keep giving in to that temptation, and it just kind of is, is what it is. It's not worth the effort anymore. Or broadly speaking, in, in terms of our church, this is just sort of the way things are, and it's probably the way that these things are going to be, so let's just sort of live with it. And that could apply to a whole number of different things. But what does a passage like this show us? A passage like this shows us that our efforts to mend relationships and to deal with all these other sorts of things <coughs> are not ultimately going to be effective apart from God's intervention. 
The fact that we were a certain way and now are a different way because of the work of Christ ought to make us expect the same for the people around us. So along those lines, don't lose hope that the people around you can change because if God changed someone like Jacob, God can change someone like that person that you think is always going to be stuck in that same rut of sinful activities. Maybe that person is you. Don't give up hope that God has the power to change you. People will talk about, um, uh, with regard to different sinful activities or behaviors, they will say things like, for example, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a gay Christian. Or, you know, I'm a, and people don't usually say this, but in the back of their minds they would say other things. I'm a, I'm a drunk Christian, I'm an adulterous Christian, I'm a greedy Christian, you know, whatever else, right? We don't usually label it quite the same way, but it crosses our mind, right? We, we get to thinking, this is just part of who I am. Even if, even if I acknowledge that God has saved me, I'm just always going to struggle with this. And I think there's a reality that we all have different sins that we tend toward that we have to constantly be on guard against, right? But there is also the powerful and life-changing reality that if God transformed Jacob... And if God transformed the Corinthians such that he said, such were some of you, that the reality is that I am no longer a lying Christian or a greedy Christian or a murderous Christian or a whatever else. I mean, Paul acknowledged this. I did do that. I'm not denying that. But now I'm serving God. There is power for change in the work that God does in our hearts and in our minds. And we're all at different places in that work. And we all need to acknowledge that work and continue to participate in it, um, striving with God by the Spirit's power to put off old ways of living and put on new ways of living, to match up with the reality that we were old creatures and now we're new creatures. We were Jacob's. There's a passage in the Old Testament where the prophet, I think it's in Habakkuk, reproves the people and says, Every man Jacob's his brother. He tricks his brother, he schemes against his brother, he deceives his brother. That's our natural tendency, but we step on this side of an encounter with God through Christ, and we say, but I don't have to do that anymore. Can people change? Not by buying it, because that didn't work for Jacob in this passage. Not by coming up with their own plans for it because Jacob's plans got derailed a whole bunch of times in the last few chapters. Can people change? Through God's power, and only through God's power, is genuine change possible. And when that takes place, people come on this side of it and they say, this is my God, the God of Mike, and Paul, and Bob, and Karen, and Margaret, and Kathy. This is my God who has accomplished this work in my life and changed me from being this sort of person through an encounter with Jesus Christ to being this sort of person, not perfect, still elements of that sin lingering, but hope for change and not the mindset that I am still a sinner 
Christian, but the mindset that God is at work in me and can change me and will change me and will finish the work that he has begun in me until the day of Jesus Christ. So we look at a passage like this, this sort of turning point in Jacob's life, and we say, well, is it about his encounter with Esau? Yes. But is it even more about his encounter with God? Yes. Have you experienced that encounter? Has your life begun to change? It's not an overnight sort of thing. Jacob's been at it 20 years and more by the time we come to this point in the passage. But it is real and measurable change that God is working in the hearts of the people who belong to him, that he has called, that he has chosen, not because they deserve it, because Jacob clearly didn't deserve it. Romans 9 points that out, and this passage has made it abundantly clear. Jacob didn't deserve it, but God chose him. God is working in his life. He has this encounter with God. He's continuing to change. And the same is true for God's people from that point until this point and until Christ returns. And so can people change around you? Can you change? Yes. By God's power, over the course of time, for His glory, so don't lose hope in it. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us not to grow weary in well-doing. As you've said, in due season we will reap if we do not faint. Help us to persevere in the work that you are doing in our hearts and lives. Because you are faithful and you will do it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.